You know, there are some things that just don't mix well together. In fact, I looked on the internet to find out things that don't mix well together, and here are some of the things that were mentioned. This one we're aware of, water and oil don't mix well together. How about nuts and gum? You ever had that unpleasant experience where you're chewing a piece of gum and then you throw nuts in there and you're like, time to get rid of the gum? How about Red Bull drink and milk? Now, I don't know what kind of combustion happens there, but evidently they said the two don't mix well. It's probably distasteful. This one was a surprise to me. Taking two different battery brands and putting them in some remote or some other device that you have. They say you should not mix the two together. Baking soda and vinegar. Ammonia and bleach. You're not to mix together. They don't mix well. Now, this one some of you may disagree with me on, but I don't think cookies and Coke taste good together. When you ever eat cookies, you got to eat it with what? Milk, you see, we know. And then finally, one person said on there, me and my ex, we don't mix well together. Well, there's another thing that doesn't mix well together in the spiritual dimension, and that is salvation by faith and works. Those two do not mix well when it comes to salvation. Now, don't misunderstand me. Works are important, but they are a byproduct of salvation. They're not a requirement for salvation. And so those two things do not mix well, and that's what the Apostle Paul is talking about in the book of Galatians. So turn to Galatians chapter 3, and we want to look at this section here on the issue of faith alone and how faith and works do not mix well together. For those of you who are visiting, we're going through the book of Galatians. Calvary Chapel, we pick books and we go through them. And this epistle was written by the Apostle Paul. It was one of his earliest letters, and you'll notice the picture up on the screen you'll see that Paul did a missionary journey, his first journey. He left the church at Antioch, which was his sending church, and he took several people with him, and he went to this area of Galatia, and he started churches there. Now, the Galatians was primarily, that area was a Gentile area, and so when he got there, Paul would typically go to the synagogue first, because if he bypassed the synagogue, the Jews would shut him down. So his strategy was to go to the synagogue first, show Jesus from the Old Testament, the Jews that embraced Christ, and also the Gentiles, he would form a church. And so he'd go to the synagogue, and then he'd preach to the Gentiles. Well, Galatia was primarily a Gentile territory. So when he got there, he preached the organic gospel. What's the organic gospel? I've been using that sort of as a theme in Galatian. Organic means it's natural. The organic gospel says you're saved by faith alone. Whenever you add anything to that, you're adding preservatives and you're adding additives. You're preaching a false gospel. And it's very important that we don't preach a false gospel because he says in no uncertain terms in chapter 1, anyone who preaches a gospel other than the gospel he preached, let him be eternally condemned. And so we can get it wrong on some doctrines, but when it comes to the gospel message, Paul is very vehement Paul is very vocal, and he's very passionate about getting the gospel right. And the reason why is because after he planted these churches in Galatia, some false teachers called Judaizers came in. They're called Judaizers because they tried to impose Judaism on top of the gospel. And they followed Paul's footsteps, and they said to the Galatians, faith alone in Jesus is good, but it's not enough. 
you must be circumcised and you must keep the law of Moses, all the ceremonial laws. And so what they were doing is trying to put the Galatians under bondage. Now, don't get me wrong. There was nothing wrong with circumcision in the Old Testament, nothing wrong with the feasts and the festivals. God instituted those and they were good as long as they were performed with the right heart. But now in the new covenant, Jesus Christ has fulfilled all those feasts and festivals, and circumcision is not an issue. The only issue is for medical reasons. The Bible says be circumcised in your heart. And so Paul basically writes this epistle to get the Galatians to come back to the message of faith alone because they were being hoodwinked, they were being deceived by these Judaizers, these false teachers. In fact, he tells them that they were being cast under this spell. Notice, if you will, chapter 3, verse 1. Here's what he says to the Galatian Christians as he's shocked. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, that word in the Greek literally means to cast a spell on. Remember in the 70s, there was that show on TV called Bewitched? A lot of people don't realize that that was promoting witchcraft. And Paul here says, by you Galatians embracing another gospel, it's as if a spell has been cast over you by the Judaizers, and you're embracing this. You have been bewitched. And listen, any Christian who buys into another gospel, and the Galatians were Christians. Paul assumes that. And yet they were in the process of buying into this false gospel, and he says, you're being bewitched. He says, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, when I went into Galatia and I preached the organic gospel to you, I made it very, very clear that Jesus died and rose from the dead and faith alone in him would save. In fact, this word here, publicly portrayed, is used of a placard. Now, all of you have seen this type of billboard. You'll notice it up on the screen. You've seen these before. You've been on the expressway before. They convey a message, and most of us look at them. In fact, I looked up a couple of them. You'll notice the next one, texting while driving kills, and then it says, for more driving tips, text this number, which is kind of contradictory. And then this one is kind of a humorous one here. Don't be late to your son's first soccer practice. Every second counts. Charmin, toilet paper, interesting ad. And then there is this one I found humorous. Humans are 90% water, basically cucumbers with anxiety. Kind of weird. Well, here is one that they portrayed, I believe, in Texas. If you'll notice this one, this is a real one. And people that drove by saw this placard, this billboard, with Jesus Christ crucified. And notice Paul says to the Galatians, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. In other words, Paul says, I put it up as a billboard when I went to Galatia. I made it very clear to you that salvation is by faith alone in the death and resurrection of Christ. Why are you allowing these Judaizers to hoodwink you? You're being bewitched. And by the way, this is so important that you and I ground new Christians in their walk with God because if we don't understand the gospel ourselves and we can't articulate the gospel, then what happens is we're more susceptible to error. And if you ask the average Christian in the American church, explain to me what the gospel message is. What are the components of the gospel on how to be saved? You would be surprised at how many Christians could not explain the gospel message. Now, they may be able to share their testimony, and that's good, but it's important that you and I know the essential foundation of what the gospel message is, because if we don't, 
and we end up preaching a false gospel, what we're doing is we're leading people astray or people that say, well, I'm a Christian, and if they can't articulate the gospel to us, we go, okay, he must be a brother in the Lord. Sometimes people will say to me, well, I believe in Jesus. Don't assume if someone says they believe in Jesus, they're necessarily a Christian. James 2 says even the demons in hell believe. And so it's important we get it right. And that's why Paul wrote this letter, because Paul was very passionate about not letting error steal away the converts that Jesus Christ had converted to himself. And so Paul takes six chapters, and all he does throughout this letter is he argues for the issue of faith alone saves. Six chapters. He uses personal arguments, and then he uses doctrinal arguments. Now, chapter 3, the one that we're in, is probably the most difficult chapter in this whole letter because it gets very technical, and hopefully I'll break it down for you and make it simple. Now, what have we learned thus far in chapters 1 and 2? What are the arguments that Paul has put forth that were saved by faith alone and not by keeping the Old Testament law? When I talk about the law, I'm not talking about the moral law of God. In the Old Testament, God condemned sins like lying, stealing, cheating, adultery. All those things are condemned. They're repeated in the New Testament, so we still want to obey them. We don't obey them to get saved. We obey them because we love God. What Paul is saying here is, I don't want you Galatians to go back to the ceremonial laws, circumcision, the feasts and the festivals. And so Paul is using arguments why we're saved by faith alone and not keeping the Mosaic law. By way of review, I noted for you the first argument he uses in chapter 1 is Paul says, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ and I speak for Christ. You see, if they could attack Paul and say he's not a legitimate apostle, they could attack his message. Attack the man, you attack his message. So they said he's not a real apostle. So that's why right at the outset he says an apostle of Jesus Christ, I was called by Christ, and apostles represented God because they got direct revelation from God. Second argument he used in chapter 1 is he basically says that his gospel message was given directly by Christ. It wasn't given to him by a man, an agency, and he didn't even get it from the other apostles because he didn't consult them after he got saved. He got it directly from Christ. He went into Arabia for three years. He was tutored by Christ. So he says, look, I got it directly from Christ. That's why he says, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be condemned because their gospel is a false gospel. And then thirdly, Paul argues basically from chapter 2, he says the other apostles confirmed his message in chapter 2. John taught about that. You see, when Paul went to Jerusalem and he presented his message of salvation to the other apostles, the ones who knew Jesus and who were taught by Jesus, they said to Paul, Paul, way to go. Right hand of fellowship, Paul, you're preaching the same message that we heard from Jesus. And so he says to the Galatian Christians, look, the apostles affirmed my message. And then one argument he used from chapter 2 is basically he confronted Peter. Peter was one of the 12 apostles. He was the leader of the 12. And yet when Peter deviated from the gospel, what did Paul do? Paul rebuked him. And Peter was a pillar in the church. Peter was one of the 12. He was the leader. And yet Paul took him to task. And you know what? There's no indication that Peter argued with Paul. Why? Because Peter knew he was out of line. He knew that he was sending mixed signals about the gospel message. And so Paul has used these four arguments thus far to demonstrate we're saved by faith alone 
and not by keeping the law. And again, I want to reiterate, works are important, but works are not a requirement for salvation. They are a byproduct of salvation. If a person says they have faith in Jesus Christ, but they don't produce any type of fruit, you have to question whether or not they really have saving faith. Because there's a lot of people on the day of judgment, Matthew 7, that are going to say, Lord, Lord, I did all these things in their name, and Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. See, there's two types of people. There are some who profess who produce no fruit. They're not saved. And then there are some who profess, and they produce plastic fruit. You ever seen plastic fruit on a table? It looks real, but it's not genuine. There are people that produce plastic fruit. Lord, we did all these things in your name. We casted out devils, on and on and on. So good works, I'm not denigrating good works. I'm simply saying they are a byproduct of salvation, not a requirement for salvation. Now in chapter 3, Paul is going to give us several other arguments here of why we're saved by faith alone. Let me share them with you this morning. We won't finish them up this morning. Next week, we'll finish chapter 3. He says basically, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is by faith alone. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is by faith alone. It's not by keeping the law of Moses. Notice what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. And here he's going to use a personal argument, not doctrinal, personal. This is the only thing I want to find out from you Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? What's the answer? Hearing with faith. You see, he's saying you received the Holy Spirit when you believed in the gospel. You didn't get the Holy Spirit at salvation by keeping the law of Moses. Verse 3, he says, are you so foolish? Are you so dumb? Having begun by the Spirit, there's the mention of the Spirit again, are you now being perfected? And perfected there doesn't mean perfect. It means mature. It means to grow. It means to be sanctified. He says, look, you started your salvation by faith alone, and now are you going to grow into Christ-likeness and be perfected and sanctified by going back to the Old Testament system? As good as it was, it has been abrogated. It's been done away with. He says, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? And the answer, obviously, is no. You started by faith, you grow by faith. He says in verse 4, did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, if you believe the gospel and you are persecuted for your faith, and you go back to the Mosaic system, you basically suffered in vain. And then in verse 5, he says, so then. Does he who provides you with the Spirit? You see the ministry of the Holy Spirit here? Mentioned three times in this section. He who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, did he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? And so here's Paul's argument in this section. He basically is talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and he's saying, all that the Holy Spirit did among you Galatians when I went into Galatia, it all happened by faith. You saw miracles, you received the Holy Spirit in your life, He came to indwell you, and all that you suffered, it was all because of faith. It had nothing to do with the Mosaic Law. And so one of the proofs here that He's giving that we're saved by faith alone and not by works is we get the ministry of the Holy Spirit at salvation. 
Now, this is very important to understand because the Holy Spirit is a person and He is indispensable in living the Christian life. You and I cannot live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. And you see, the Bible says the moment you accept Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8, the Holy Spirit comes to live in on the inside of you. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember in the Old Testament, you'll notice the picture up on the screen, the Holy Spirit, or God rather, dwelt in the second room called the Holy of Holies. This was the temple, the tabernacle that Israel would worship, and God symbolically dwelt in that particular room. He didn't live in every Old Testament believer. Now, the Holy Spirit came on people in the Old Testament for certain works, but the Holy Spirit did not live in people permanently. That's why David prayed in Psalm 51, Lord, don't take your spirit away from me. However, there's a shift in the new covenant. You and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us. Next slide. And basically, the Holy Spirit ministers through us. You see, the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us permanently, unlike the Old Testament. And so you and I have the ministry of the Holy Spirit. How did we get the Holy Spirit? We got it by faith. It wasn't by effort. It wasn't by human works. You and I are indwelt by the Spirit by faith. Now, here's the issue for all of us, because I think we all understand that the Holy Spirit lives on the inside of us if we're generally born again. But the issue is, am I filled with the Spirit? Because the Bible makes a distinction between being indwelt by the Spirit and filled with the Spirit. All Christians are indwelt by the Spirit, but not all Christians are filled with the Spirit. I have all the Holy Spirit I'm ever going to get. The question is, does He have all of me? And to be filled with the Spirit simply means to be permeated and controlled. Remember I told you it's not filling up a cup? The word in the Greek is not taking a cup and filling it up. We often think of filling that way. The word is permeation. The word is control. My wife makes a killer buffalo chicken dip. I love it. And I'm not one into hot sauce and all that stuff, hot wings, but she puts a little bit of hot sauce in there and has a kick. And so during the games yesterday, I'm just going to town eating this stuff. I mean, I could eat it with a spoon. I love it so much. But after about two hours of eating this, I was like, oh, gosh. I started to feel it in my stomach. And so I said, I got to get some relief. So I looked in the cabinet, I said, ah, reached in a box, and there was two little tablets called Alka-Seltzer. I tore it, I did some water, put it in there, then I put the next one, you know what that Alka-Seltzer did? Permeated the water. It became one with that water. That's the idea of filling. See, you and I are filled with the Holy Spirit when we submit to the Holy Spirit's power. Are you a Spirit-filled Christian? Listen, you and I cannot live the Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. And one of the things he says here, he implies, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to mature us. It's to help grow us in our walk with God. See, here's what the Galatians were doing. Let me show you a slide because pictures speak a thousand words. Next slide. You'll notice the Galatians were saved by the Spirit, but they were trying to be perfected or matured by keeping the law, human effort. Here's what Paul said. Next slide. He says, you're not only saved by the Spirit, but you are matured by the Spirit, the engine being the power. You see, and what they were doing is going back to the Old Testament, and they were trying to earn God's favor by keeping the law. And he says, no, you mature by faith in Jesus Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit, not trying to engage in legalism. You and I cannot grow in our Christian life apart from the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of trying to do it in my own strength. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We have to make an effort in our Christian life. God's not going to make you read your Bible. You're going to have to get up and read it. You have to say no to the flesh, and you have to discipline yourself. But you can't do it apart from the Holy Spirit. And so here's the tension in the Bible. Who lives the Christian life, you or God? It's both. It's all of you, but it's all of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's goal is to mature you. And he tells the Galatians, hey, you started off by faith. Do you think you're going to mature by trying to keep the law? He says no. And by the way, the implication here is Christians should be maturing. Are you maturing? Sometimes I think in my Christian life, the longer I live, the longer I walk with God, I think I've progressed. And then you know what? I take three steps back and I go, man, I got a long way to go. I'm sure you feel that in your Christian life. But how do you know you're growing spiritually? Because a lot of Christians assume they're growing because they attend church on Sunday. You know, you could go to church 20, 30, 40 years of your life and remain a spiritual infant in Christ. Really quickly, let me give you some measurements to know if the Spirit is working in you and you're maturing in your walk with God. None of these are going to be perfect, but here are some signs. You are submitted to the Lordship of Christ by seeking a lifestyle of obedience. Do you see that in your life? Not perfect. You're moving from the milk of the Word to the meat of the Word. Daily bread is good, but it's not enough. You're spending consistent time with God in the Word and in prayer. You see, that's a sign that you're maturing. Are you going to miss? Of course. But is there a consistency there? You're dealing with sin regularly through confession and repentance. Again, you're not perfect. You're probably going to blow it regularly, if not daily, but you confess your sin and seek to repent of it. Here's another mark you're growing in your walk with God. You want to get involved in ministry and service to others. No one has to cajole you to serve. You want to serve. You're not just a Sunday Christian only. You're committed to regularly gathering with God's people. This is a sign of maturity. You walk in the Spirit and are producing the fruit of the Spirit, albeit not perfectly, but there is a desire to produce the fruit of the Spirit. People see that in your life. You have a heart to reach the lost. You're giving financially your first fruits to God. You're growing in your faith towards God and your love towards others. You know, it's interesting, in most of Paul's letters, he talks about faith and love, and he uses those as benchmarks to, to determine whether or not we're maturing. Do you see growth in faith? Not perfect faith. Do you see a, a greater love for others? How about you walk in wisdom and discernment? This is another mark of maturity. And finally, you are seeking to be emotionally healthy personally and in your relationships with other people. We often neglect that one, but that is a sign of spiritual maturity is that you are becoming more emotionally healthy. Because listen, there's a lot of Christians that are dysfunctional. They got a lot of baggage. They got a lot of damaged emotions. And you know what? Jesus wants to heal that. You see, these are all indications that the Spirit is working in me and He's producing maturity. And that's what Paul says here. The Spirit not only indwelt you Galatians by faith, but the Spirit is seeking to mature you. Don't go back to the law. You can't mature by simply trying to crank it out in your own strength. And then he says the Holy Spirit did miracles among you. What does he mean by that? Well, if you read Acts chapter 14, when Paul planted the churches in Galatia, God did a series of miracles there. A lame man was healed. They wanted to stop and worship Paul and Barnabas. Paul says, don't do that. We're just men. God did all these miracles in Galatia, and he said, how did those miracles come about? They came about because of faith, not because you tried to keep all the Old Testament rules and regulations, and it's the same today. God does miracles today. I believe God is a God of miracles today. 
I don't think we see as many in the West, I think because of our unbelief and because we're very scientifically driven and we are so dependent upon technology, I don't think God works in America, not because he doesn't want to, but I think because of unbelief. If you go to other countries, you see God work. Now, I'm not saying that there's a miracle on every corner happening. I think some people trump a lot of this stuff up, but God is working significantly and he still works miracles in America. What are you trusting God for this year? I have to ask myself that question. What miracle am I trusting God for? There may not always be something significant. Do you hear about that girl two weeks ago in Texas, 14-year-old? She had an inoperable brain tumor. And they took her to the doctors. The doctors said it was a very bad tumor. It would affect her speech and everything else. And the parents were praying. They were Christians, and they were asking God to heal her. And sure enough, when she went in for her MRI, the tumor totally dissipated. The doctors were dumbfounded. They didn't have an explanation for it, but you and I know that our God is a healing God. He does miracles. He doesn't always do it for everybody. I don't know why. He's sovereign. I can't question him. God heals some, and some he allows to die. But he says, look, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was brought about among you Galatians, not because you kept all the Old Testament ceremonies. It's because of faith in Jesus Christ. And I present to you this morning, we need the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has a lot of ministries. He guides, he leads, he convicts, he comforts, he gifts us, he indwells us, he fills us, he empowers us, he gives us boldness. You see, that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and it's all by faith. Now, faith doesn't mean you let go and let God, and you say, well, God, I have faith. I'm not going to do anything. It's not let go and let God. It's you got to make an effort, but you say, God, as I make this effort, I depend upon you to fill me and give me the strength to do it. You see, there's a tension there. It's like an escalator at the airport. You know those ones that move? You're walking on them when you got the luggage like this. You're going real quick, right? You ever been on them before? You feel like you're walking on air? Who's moving you along, the escalator or you? It's both. You're walking, but the escalator's carrying you. You see, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. You got to walk, but the Spirit fills you. And so Paul here uses a personal argument from experience. And he says, guys, how did you get the Holy Spirit? Got it by faith. You didn't see his work by doing all these other things. Well, there's a second argument he gives for faith alone, and that is salvation in the Old Testament is by faith alone. Say, what? I thought people in the Old Testament were saved by works. No. People in the Old Testament are saved by faith alone, just like people in the New Testament. And Paul is going to use this argument to undercut the Judaizers because they're going to use Moses, as we're going to see later on, not today, but next week, they're going to use Moses as their example to say that the way of salvation is by the law. Paul argues differently. Notice the example he uses here beginning in verse 6. And here he moves from a personal argument to a doctrinal argument. Even so, Abraham. He goes all the way back to Genesis at the beginning. Abraham's the father of the Jewish people. He says, how was Abraham made right with God? Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And he quotes here Genesis 15, 6. He says to the Galatians and indirectly to the Judaizers, wait, let's go back to the Old Testament. How was Abraham saved? All the way back. God made a promise to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. He told him he would have a son, and from his loins would come a great nation, and all the nations would be blessed. 
Abraham believed God's promise. You say, wait, Jesus Christ hadn't come yet. You're right, Jesus hadn't come yet, but Abraham simply believed in the promise that God had given him. That's what we do in the New Testament. We believe in God's promise that if we believe in Jesus, we'll be saved. Well, what they did in the Old Testament is they took the limited revelation that God given them, and if they believed it, God would justify them if their heart was right. It was simply by faith alone. And he said, Abraham was justified by faith alone, and he quotes Genesis 15, 6. And by the way, this is interesting. He was justified in chapter 15. Chapter 17, God gives him circumcision. And that's what Paul argues in Romans. He says, wait, circumcision is not necessary to be saved. He says, look at chapter 15. Abraham was made right with God without circumcision. It wasn't two chapters later that God instituted the outward sign of circumcision. So he says this, therefore, verse 7, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. You say, I'm not a son of Abraham. Yeah, you are. If you know Jesus Christ, you say, well, I'm not Jewish. Listen, there's a son of Abraham in terms of your ethnicity. If you're Jewish, you're a physical son of Abraham. But if you're not Jewish, the Bible says you're a spiritual son of Abraham or a spiritual daughter of Abraham. Why? Because if you have the same faith as Abraham, you're his spiritual descendant. So he says, look, guys, you at Galatia who are Gentiles, you are descendants of Abraham. Verse 8, and then he goes back to the Scripture. The Scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. And he quotes here Genesis 22, 18, verse 9, so that then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. He's saying, you know what God promised to Abraham? God promised to Abraham that through him would come a great nation, and from that nation would ultimately come the Messiah, and the Messiah would bless all nations. And so he's saying, you Gentiles are included in this promise. And so who does he use from the Old Testament to prove that you're saved by faith alone? He uses Abraham. You say, but wait, I'm confused. Jesus hadn't come yet. I'm glad you asked that question, because again, I want to show you this diagram. This will help explain it to you. Not this one, the next one. In the Old Testament, they were saved by faith. Here's Abraham. Abraham was saved by faith. They looked forward to the cross. Now, they didn't understand that Jesus would die because most Jews didn't understand that. Even though Isaiah 53 talked about it, most Jews did not fully understand the fact that their Messiah would die on a cross because anyone who was placed on a tree, crucified, was cursed, according to Deuteronomy. So they didn't think in those terms, even though it was in the Old Testament, but they looked forward. We as Christians in the New Testament, we look backwards to the cross. Both ways of how people were saved are by faith. They believed in the coming Redeemer. We look back and we believe in Jesus Christ. There's not two ways of salvation. The Bible says in the Old Testament, you're saved by faith. In the New Testament, you're saved by faith. And notice it says here, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. You say, what do you mean it was credited to him as righteousness? Here's what God did. Are you listening? Say amen. God took the righteousness of Jesus and he imputed it to Abraham so that when God saw Abraham, who did he see? He saw Jesus. You say, wait, Jesus hadn't come yet. You know what he did? He gave Abraham salvation on credit. Now, how many use credit cards here? 
You don't have to raise your hand. If you do, hopefully you pay it off at the end of the month. But when you use a credit card and you swipe that card, you know what you're basically saying? I want the goods now and I'm going to pay later. And so what happened was God gave Abraham the goods when Abraham believed and the payment would come later. Because remember, with God, there is no time. And so in God's mind, the crucifixion was a done deal, even though it hadn't happened yet. So when Abraham believed, God took the righteousness of Christ that he would die later on, and he gave him that righteousness on credit, even though the payment would be made later. And so people in the Old Testament were saved by faith alone. Abraham is the prime example And people in the New Testament are saved by faith alone. There are not two ways of salvation. Anyone who tells you, well, in the Old Testament, they were saved by keeping the law and by being good, but then Jesus came and he brought a different way of salvation, nothing could be further from the truth. We are simply saved by faith alone in God's promise. And listen, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you simply have to put your faith in him, if it's genuine faith, and God will forgive you of all your sins. And so Paul here says it's faith alone, not keeping the law that saves. How do I know? Number one, the ministry of the Holy Spirit was brought about by faith. Number two, Old Testament saints were saved by faith alone. Abraham's the example. Thirdly, here's why you're saved by faith alone. The law condemns you. The law condemns me. The law is a mirror. Now, I don't know about you, but we all look in the mirror, don't we? And back in that day, they had polished bronze. What they would do is they'd polish it, and they could see the reflection, but it was very dim. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, we now see in a mirror dimly, because they didn't have the mirror we have today. You've been in the mirror before, and have you ever had the unpleasant experience of seeing the flaws on your face? Especially as you get older, do you know they're more pronounced? You see more hair as a man on your face. And I'm like, I don't know where all this eyebrow hair is coming from on me. I'm like, hun, come over here. You got to get this eyebrow stuff out. Well, the other day, I was trimming my sort of beard, and I can't see as well. My eyesight is going. And so I didn't use my glasses. And so I went ahead and I buzzed my face, and I got rid of my thicker beard And then later on the next day, I was in the downstairs bathroom. It's smaller, the light is brighter, and the mirror is just more pronounced. And when I looked, I noticed I left a patch of hair out. And I was like, oh, this is so embarrassing. You ever had that before? And you see what the mirror did? The mirror exposed my flaw. It exposed my mistake. That is the purpose of the law. It condemns. It cannot save you. Notice what he says in verse 10. For as many as are under the works of the law, if you're trying to keep the Ten Commandments, if you're under the works of the law, he says you are under a curse. For it is written, and here he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. In other words, if you don't keep the law perfectly, you're under condemnation. You say, yeah, but Mike, I have done so many things good. You know what James says? If you violate the law, at one point you're guilty of breaking it all because it's a unit. You can't say, God, I've never cheated on my spouse. God, I've never cheated on my income tax. God, I have never said a cuss word. I've never taken your name in vain. Okay, you ever coveted? You ever lusted? You ever been jealous? You ever been bitter? You ever been unforgiving? 
You see, the law's purpose is not to save us. The law's purpose is to condemn us. And he says, look, you're under a curse if you don't keep the law perfectly. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law, we know that you're justified by faith. We saw Abraham. He says, we're not justified by, uh, by the law before God. It is evident we're not. Why? Because now he quotes Habakkuk 2.4, Old Testament again. The righteous man shall live by what? Faith. That's what the Old Testament taught. However, verse 12, the law is not of faith. Law and faith are mutually exclusive. On the contrary, here's what the law says. He who practices them shall live by them. He quotes Leviticus 18.5, and what that verse is saying is, if you want to have life and you want to live forever, keep the law perfectly and listen carefully, theoretically, God would owe you eternal life. If you could keep God's law perfectly and never violate it, God would owe you heaven because you've earned it. That's why salvation is by grace. You cannot earn it or deserve it because we're all guilty of violating the law of God. We've broken the law of God, and we cannot gain eternal life by it. I use this sometimes as an evangelism tool. There's different approaches that you take with different people. You know, a religious person, you use one approach. An atheist, you use another approach. And I'm sort of led by the Spirit as I go on this, but I was eating at Papa Gio's uh, over the Christmas holiday, and... Um, I was with uh, my two daughters, and the waiter comes up, and he was very, very nice. He was about 20, 21 years old. He says, is there anything else I can do for you? I said, yeah, you can. I said, I want to ask you a question. He goes, what do you want to ask me? I said, where are you going to go when you die? He said, "Uh, I think heaven. I said, do you want to go to heaven when you die? He said, absolutely. I said, here's how to get to heaven when you die. I said, be perfect. He looked at me and said, huh? I said, be perfect. Now, usually when you tell somebody to be perfect, you got them in your hand. Why? Because what are they going to inevitably say? I can't be perfect. Are you crazy? Are you nuts? You see, you got them exactly where you want them. And I explained to this young gentleman, you can't get to heaven by keeping the law because most people, if you ask them, what do you got to do to get to heaven? What do they typically say? Go to church, be a good person, do all these things. And I explained to them, The law's purpose is not to save you. The law's purpose is to expose your sin. That's why when I evangelize, before you talk about Christ, you got to talk about the law. I often will use the Ten Commandments, not to beat people over the head. You want to be loving and gracious, but I say to people sometimes, you familiar with the Ten Commandments? They'll say, sure. One of the commandments is, thou shalt not lie. Have you ever told a lie? Mm, Yeah. One of the commandments is, thou shalt not steal. Have you ever stolen? 50-50 on that one. One of the commandments is thou should obey your father and your mother. I had somebody said, I've never disobeyed my parents. I was like, wow. Now, this one I always get. I said, it says, do not commit adultery. But I said, Jesus took it further on the outside. And he said, if you lust in your heart, you've committed the act in one sense, even though there is a distinction there. I said, have you ever lusted after anybody? I've had no one except two people say they're not guilty on that one. Now, here's what I say to them. If God was to judge you on the day of judgment on whether or not you've kept his commandments, would you be innocent or guilty? Inevitably, they say, I would be what? Guilty. And I say, you know what it says in the book of Nahum? The guilty will not go unpunished. And you see, that's a segue to present the truth, to present the gospel. So he says here, look, 
The law cannot save you. And he's telling the Galatians, don't listen to those Judaizers. If they put you under the law, they're putting you under condemnation. The purpose of the law is not to save you. It is to reveal your sin. You'll notice this MRI machine up on the screen here. This is an MRI that is not the exact one, but I had to sit in this donut-shaped one years ago. I was getting, Laura and I were doing a trip out west, and I noticed when I laid down, I was getting pain right here, and I'm thinking, what's going on? So I had a colonoscopy done, nothing there. And uh, so finally, they put me in the MRI machine, and they found out I had two hernias, like Pastor John. Two hernias. And they said, you got to get them sewed up. Got to put that mesh in. You know what? When I got out of that machine, I did not grab the machine and say, thank you. Thank you for being my Savior. You know what the purpose of the machine was? The purpose of the machine was simply to expose that I had a problem. Ultimately, you know where the machine led me? Look at the next slide. The machine led me to the doctor. You see, the doctor was the one that was going to do the surgery. And you see, Jesus is the one that ultimately saves us, and that's the purpose of the law. It's to lead us to Christ, because look what he says in verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The law curses me and says you're under judgment because you cannot keep the law. Christ is the one who redeems us from the curse of the law. You see, the purpose of the law is to drive me to Jesus and say, Jesus, I can't keep your law. I'm doomed. I'm headed for hell. And Jesus, have mercy upon me. When you do that, that's when God will justify you. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, and he quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23, everyone who hangs on a tree is what? Cursed. By the way, that's why the Jewish people rejected Jesus as their Messiah, because their idea of Messiah was a political, physical ruler who would deliver them from the oppression of Rome. They didn't see Jesus dying on a cross because to them, someone hanging on a tree based on Deuteronomy 21, 23, they are cursed by God. And yes, the Bible says Jesus was cursed for you and I. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. He kept the law perfectly and did what you and I cannot do. And that's why when we believe in him, God takes his perfect life and he imputes it to our account so that when God sees me, he sees who? Jesus Christ. You see, this is the doctrine of substitution. Verse 14, why was Jesus cursed? In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, those are the Galatians and you and I, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through what? Faith. It's faith. It's not good works. Galatians 3.19, why the law then? Paul says the law is not designed to save you. It was added because of transgression. The reason why God gave Israel the law, the reason why you and I have the law, it's a mirror. It shows us our sins to drive us to Christ. And so he says, as we end in verse 21 through 25, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Are there two ways of salvation? Being saved by the law or being saved by the promise of God, which is by faith? He says, may it never be, God forbid. There's not two ways of salvation. For if a law had been given, which was able to impart life, then righteousness would have been based on the law. If we could be saved by keeping the law, God would have made that known to us. The law brings wrath, it says in Romans. Verse 22, but the scripture has shut up everyone under sin 
so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who what? Believe. You know what the Scripture does? Watch this. The Scripture shuts us up. You see, when people go to heaven, God is going to judge them only on two things. Are you listening? Say amen. Watch this. He's going to judge them on their righteousness or Christ's righteousness. When you stand before God on the day of judgment, you're either going to be standing before Him in your own righteousness, or you're going to be standing before Him in Christ's righteousness. If you are standing before God on the day of judgment, and most people will, in their own righteousness, they will be weighed in the balance and found wanting. Because all God has to do is take His law, like a mirror, and measure it against their life, and they'll fall short. On the other hand, if I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ, His perfect righteousness, because I trusted in Him, when I stand before God, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I get into, the hev- into heaven on the basis of Christ's performance, not mine. It's by faith. Why? Because Jesus bore my curse. Story is told about an Indian chief, big old guy. He was known for his mercy and his justice. And one day, some of his chiefs came to him. And they said, hey, there's been a rash of burglaries in our tribe. We don't know who's doing it. He said, well, find out, catch the perpetrator, and bring him to me, and we'll bring him to justice. And so a couple weeks later, they come back to him, and they're kind of sheepish as they come to him. And uh, he says, what's going on? And he says, they said, well, chief, we found out who the perpetrator is, who the thief is. He said, who is it? We need to give him a good lash. They said, chief, it's your aged mother. Your old mother. He said, tie her up. So they took his mother with her wrinkly back, they stripped her, and they tied her up. And the lictors got behind her, and they were about to whip her. And you know, if they gave her the blows that she deserved, she wouldn't have survived it. As soon as they were about to beat her, the account says that the chief stood in front of his mother, and he took the blows for his mother. You see, that's substitution. That chief bore the curse of her sin on himself. And that's exactly what Jesus Christ did for you and I. He bore our curse. And so Paul is arguing here, look, the law's goal is not to save us. The law condemns us. But here's the good news. The law drives us to Christ because he bore our curse for us. And so these are the arguments that Paul is using with the Galatians to try to win them back from listening to the deception of these false teachers. And if you're sitting here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what are you trusting in to save you? Ask yourself this question, am I trusting really in my church attendance, my good life, or have I really repented of my sin and trusted in Jesus Christ to save me? And do I see the fruit in my life? Because if you say you're a Christian and there's no evidence, there's no fruit, there's no desire for the things of God, ultimately God knows your heart. I'm not the judge. He's privy to what's going on in your heart. But I will say this, James chapter 2 says, if you don't see fruit, you better question whether your faith is genuine. And are you maturing this morning as we looked about earlier? Would you say that you are a Gerber Christian or are you an Outback Steak Christian? Gerber Christian, Outback Steak Christian. See, the Spirit's role is to mature us. That's what he said in verses 2 and 3. The Spirit's role is to mature us. We got to cooperate with that. God's not going to mature you automatically. you got to cooperate. But listen, a lot of Christians are still Gerber Christians. They're still being given spiritual diapers. God wants to mature us 
in our walk with Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word to us. Thank You for this wonderful doctrine of faith alone in Jesus Christ saves. Lord, we realize that it's not our good works that deliver us. It's trusting in You for salvation. We thank You for that, Lord, because we all fall short of Your glory and Your perfect righteousness. Father, we give You praise, we give You glory, and we thank You for the ministry of the Holy Spirit, how He does miracles, how He matures us, and how we are indwelt by the Spirit. I pray this morning that we would all be Spirit-filled Christians, led by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And if you're sitting here this morning, maybe God has spoken to your heart. If you're not saved, talk to me after the service and say, Mike, I need a relationship with Christ. And this morning, if you say, Pastor Mike, I'm not growing like I should, would you make 2019 a commitment that you're going to grow, that you're going to get involved, that you're going to serve? If you're going to grow, the next step is you want to start reading the word praying and you want to start serving and getting involved. We grow not simply by receiving, we also grow by doing, by serving other people. Just take a minute now to pray as the Lord has spoken to you. Father, we thank you this morning for speaking to us in Jesus' name. Amen.